Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu driving the show with Anne Musa, Tabisoluhuku and Tami Kluza. Top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. Voting gets underway in Zimbabwe and UN renews mandate of its peacekeeping mission in Darfur. In economics, Kenya Airways signs code share agreement with Air Namibia and in sports news, South African swimmers qualify for the finals at the World Championships. But first, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Polling stations have opened on time in Arare for Zimbabwe's crucial presidential and parliamentary elections. At 5 o'clock this morning, presiding officers were already setting up the polling stations. 6.4 million people are eligible to vote in the showdown between President Robert Mugabe and MDC leader Morgan Changarai. Mathlati Gallens has more. Early at 5 o'clock, the presiding officers had already started preparing uh, the polling stations. They had already received the ballot boxes, the ink that is necessary. Uh, they needed uh, guest lamps to at least help with the light because uh, uh, it's quite gloomy outside here in Barrett today. But all of that also has come 7 o'clock. The polling did actually start. The mood is also calming in the country's second biggest city, Bulawayo, as Anele Butalezi reports. We've had uh, the first person arriving at 4 a.m. when he's just completed uh, casting his pilot and he's walked out looking very big and excited. People here are very enthusiastic about the process, both young and old. They've braved the cold weather of uh, Bulawayo, but people are saying they want to be part of this process. They want to cast their ballot and ensure that uh, Zimbabwe does uh, progress for the better. Former Malian Prime Minister Ibrahim Boubacar Keita holds a wide lead in the first round of the country's presidential election. According to the preliminary elections, which represent one-third of the votes from constituencies throughout the country, Keita could win an outright first-round victory in the presidential election. Other presidential candidates have rejected the partial results, asking the Minister of Territorial Administration, who is tasked with the elections, to resign. They've also urged an international commission to be launched to tally the ballots. The competitors believe the elections must go to a second round. Observer missions have meanwhile held the peaceful voting. Recurrent conflict in the DRC's North Kivu province is uprooting more civilians and exposing an increasing number of women, girls and men to rape. UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR in the region, has registered 705 cases of sexual violence, including 619 cases of rape. UNHCR says the victims included 288 minors and 43 men, adding that most of the sexual 
sexual violence as reportedly committed by armed men. Fatumata Lejana Kaba is UNHCR spokesperson in Geneva. We are worried that the fighting between the ADF, the Ugandan rebel group, and the Congolese army, as well as renewed fighting between the army and the M23 rebels around Goma, over the two weeks will increase the danger for women in the region, including those living in camps. Out of the 705 cases of sexual violence reported to ASAF since the beginning of this year, 434 were perpetrated by armed elements. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry says Palestinian and Israeli negotiators have reached an agreement on some technicalities. Peace talks began in Washington yesterday. Both sides have apparently been given certain assurances, as Malfrickberg reports. Kerry said the objective is to reach a final status agreement after nine months. According to a senior Israeli official, the U.S. administration gave the Israeli and Palestinian negotiating teams letters of assurance on Tuesday, the contents of which remain classified. It is believed, however, that the letters clarify that negotiations are to be carried out on the basis of the 1967 borders with land swaps relating to the reality on the ground for a future Palestinian state. Israel is also to be recognized as a Jewish state and Palestinian refugees must return to a future Palestinian state. And that's the news for the Sauber. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. In our top story of the morning, as Zimbabweans go to the polls today, Zimbabwe's incumbent president, Robert Mugabe, said he is confident of an outright win, but said he might be open to forming another coalition against longtime rival Morgan Changarai. The elections come as opposition parties said the voters' role to be used on polling day has come too late for scrutiny. Shingai Nyoka reports. Damn these masters who impose on you. You see their own views and don't want you to express yourselves in an objective way. A rare interview with the world's press. Robert Mugabe eager to assure that he's been wrongly portrayed as a dictator. He says he's ready to accept defeat at Wednesday's polls and distanced himself from utterances by pro-Zanupiev military chiefs that they would not recognize a Morgan Changirai win. If, if, if one or two said so, it's just those one or two, they are not the army and they are not the authority anyway. But that was their own view and I thought it was corrected. But concerns about the electoral roll continue. Political parties say they've not received it and will not be able to scrutinize the role for alleged manipulation. President Mugabe, though, said that he'd received his on Monday. Zimbabwe Lawyers for Human Rights Director Irene Petrus. The Electoral Act gives very clear and quite a long timeline where the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission must provide the voters' role and allow people to, to examine it and to address any of the inconsistencies. So where you have a situation 24 hours before the election where the role is not provided, then obviously people will begin to think that there's some kind of, 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 of uh, conspiracy. But we cannot say 
that we have any evidence or with any accuracy that there's duplications, there's people who are still on the roll who, who have since passed away uh, and that kind of thing, Be just simply because people have not had the opportunity to look at the final roll and check those things. Analysts predict that the two main contenders are neck and neck, with Mugabe having the narrow edge as a result of his control over media, security forces and the electoral process, a charge that he denies. They also predict that the AU and SADC observers are likely to sign off on the polls. Analyst Brian Raftopoulos. I think the AU and SADC are desperate to get a credible result out of this process. The, the, the meaning of that is, uh, I think, provided there's no overt violence, they're likely to sign off on any minimally credible election and almost overlook some of these problems. As Zimbabweans go to the elections, they say they are cautiously optimistic that the veteran leader will abide by his words and step down if they so decide. Shingai Nyokai, Harare, Zimbabwe. The UN Security Council has renewed the mandate of the joint AU-UN hybrid mission in the troubled Darfur region of Sudan, but has tasked the UN Secretary-General to conduct a forward-looking review of its operations. The mission, established in 2007 to bring stability and enforce a core mandate of protecting civilians, includes several hundred troops from South Africa in an overall force contingent of around 19,000. A recent spike in inter-ethnic clashes and attacks on UN personnel that saw seven Tanzanian soldiers killed in an ambush earlier this month has raised alarm that progress is in ending the decade-long conflict is being undermined. Zimbabweans are voting in a presidential election that has already been hit by allegations of fraud. Prime Minister Morgan Changarai's Movement for Democratic Change has accused President Mugabe ZANU-PF of doctoring the voters' role. Voting began at 7 Central Eastern Time. For an update on the elections in Zimbabwe, our reporter Chrisalda Lewis joins us from Bulawayo. Good morning, Chrisalda, and thank you for joining us. Well, good morning. Chris Alda, how would you describe the mood in Bulawayo as we speak? Well, I can tell you there's a lot of excitement here in Bulawayo. When we arrived here at about 4.30 this morning, there was already a crowd of people who were standing outside the town hall where we are monitoring the situation. We've just spoken to the provincial election officer who told us that all 392 polling stations in 12 constituencies have already opened. In this region, we're expecting about 320,000 plus people to go to the polls, but uh, while smoothly, while uh, the election process is going on quite smoothly at the moment, there's already been a few incidents. Uh, there have been two so far, one relating to a woman who came to the town hall to vote. She was turned away from this polling station because her name did not appear on the voters' roll. She was one of the people who arrived shortly after 4 o'clock. She was visibly upset that she was being sent to another place to go and check if her name was appearing. So those are some of the issues that we're having at the moment. And also two observers have also been turned away in the Bulawayo area. So it, uh, it's gone relatively smoothly so far, but not without a few of these incidents. Now, Crisalda, we've had reports of uh, intimidation in other parts of, uh, of the country. Have you heard anything from your side? 
Well, where majority of the complaints have been coming from, we've been hearing from independent election observers who've been telling us, particularly in this area, uh, around uh, the Bulawayo and outskirts of this area, four places uh, are basically being put on as hot spots where uh, these observers will be monitoring the situation. One in Umguza, one in Inziza, one in Kupane, and one in Cholocho. Uh, basically, those four areas, these observers are saying that we're looking to because in the run-up to this election there have been serious reports of threats, intimidation uh, for people to vote uh, for certain political parties. So those are some of the areas that we're going to monitor at the moment. You will recall in one area in Inciza, uh, one person was killed there in 2008. So election observers saying they're on high alert uh, in those areas to basically see if there's going to be any tensions that might rise there. Now, Griselda, have you managed to speak to any of the voters who've cast their ballots and what is the feeling after doing that? How do they feel? Well, I actually spoke to the first voter who cast his vote here at the town hall in Bulawayo, and he seemed very, very, very excited. I tell you, it's quite chilly here in Bulawayo, but that hasn't deterred the hundreds, the thousands of people from coming out to cast their ballots. The first voter here saying that all that he wants to see is a Zimbabwe that moves forward, a Zimbabwe that is stable, a Zimbabwe that is free of political tension, a Zimbabwe where people are able to go out and cast their ballots uh, in a society where people are concerned or, or rather looking forward to a country that is able to improve in the coming years. He says it doesn't matter who is at the harm of this country, but he is simply wanting someone who is prepared and is committed to a cause of ensuring that the people or the lives of the Zimbabwean people do improve. Now, Chriselda, I know that uh, there's, there's a lot of optimism from the people. Are there any fears of uh, a a relapse or the same thing happening that happened in 2008? Well, just before we uh, traveled to Bulawayo, we were in, in an area called Howard, which is uh, just outside Harare. And we spoke to some of uh, the uh, uh, voters or Zimbabweans there who were saying to us, it's not in as much a concern about, uh, um, you know, an upsurge or rather uh, tensions starting up uh, in the run-up to the election. But after the election, after the results start coming out, uh, what will be the response uh, from the different political parties, what will be the response uh, from those who are contesting in this election, and if that might fuel some kind of anger and a possible violence in the different areas, not so much in the urban areas, but where the main concern seems to be coming from is in the rural areas. We spoke to a family uh, that was um, uh, a victim uh, in the 2008 uh, uh, political violence. Um, uh, You know, we went there and saw some of the houses that were torched in that election. And when we spoke to them, they're basically saying they're not worried about now, but after the results start coming out, is there going to be a happiness from the losers uh, who might emerge there? And uh, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, some unhappiness which might uh, lead uh, to some kind of uh, uh, violence in the rural areas. Now, Crisalda, in terms of uh, the, the polling stations, did everything start on time? as per the 7 o'clock opening time. And what, are, what time are they looking to close um, um, the polling stations? 
Well, we did speak to Innocent Nube, who is the potential elections officer in this area, and he told us that all 392 polling stations in the 12 constituencies have opened on time. Even here where I am, everything, well, the doors opened at 7 o'clock. The first voter had gone in to cast his vote. So... Um, they opened at 7 and will also close at 7 o'clock tonight. However, should it come 7 o'clock tonight and the line is still outside uh, uh, the, the particular polling stations, those people will be allowed to vote. So everyone who is in the line at 7 o'clock this evening will be allowed to cast their ballots. Nobody will be turned away from these polling stations. So we're expecting, uh, because probably in this area, because of the chilly conditions, you know, it might have deterred many people. They're waiting for the sun to come out just a little bit. So we're expecting voting to go on well into the night uh, in terms of those who are already in the line at 7 o'clock this evening. Chriselda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was our reporter, Chriselda Lewis, talking to us from the city of Bulawayo in Zimbabwe. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The UN Security Council has renewed the mandate of the joint AU-UN hybrid mission in the troubled Darfur region of Sudan, but has tasked the UN Secretary-General to conduct a forward-looking review of its operations. The mission, established in 2007 to bring stability and enforce a core mandate of protecting civilians, includes several hundred troops from South Africa in an overall force contingent of around 19,000. A recent spike in inter ethnic clashes and attacks on UN personnel that saw seven Tanzanian soldiers killed in an ambush earlier this month has raised alarm that progress in ending the decade-long conflict is being undermined. Sharon Bryce Peace reports. The draft resolution has been adopted unanimously as Resolution 2113. A unanimous 13-month extension. And despite progress in stabilizing the region since the mission began its work in 2007, recent hostilities have raised the alarm. Sudan's ambassador, Dafa Allah Elhag Ali Osman, was on hand to welcome the mission's mandate renewal. As for the crimes which have been committed in Darfur, we welcome the investigations that have been undertaken by the prosecutor in Darfur and uh, the uh, Security Council is encouraging this process. We welcome the support uh, provided by the Security Council to the Doha document. We welcome as well the refusal by the Security Council uh, for the uh, lack of support of certain parties to the peace agreement uh, and uh, the Council's request to those movements uh, to put an end to their hostilities. Ten years have passed since conflict broke out in the region and two million people remain internally displaced or as refugees. The killings have slowed but they've not stopped. The Council now tasking UN Chief Ban Ki-moon to conduct a thorough review, as UN spokesperson Eduardo Del Bui explains. It also requested that the Secretary General present options and recommendations on improving UNAMID's effectiveness to the Security Council by the end of next February. The resolution deplores the unacceptably slow pace of implementing the Doha peace document, while several rebel movements have failed to renounce violence and join the peace process. 
Sudan's ambassador Ali Osman again. We reiterate uh, our position, uh, the position of principle of the Sudanese government. We cannot uh, achieve a solution to this conflict uh, unless we undertake negotiations and have a peace process. The acts uh, carried out by the uh, rebel movements uh, regarding the attacks uh, against uh, the mission. These are all attempts to put an end to the peace process. We hope that the Security Council will help the government of Sudan uh, to continue its efforts uh, so that we can achieve peace, security and stability in Sudan. Diplomats have called for a fresh approach to the mission following an escalation in violence this year that has already seen 300,000 people displaced. Sherman Bricebees at the United Nations, New York. Meanwhile, the International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC, is handing out food, seed and tools for nearly half a million people in Sudan's Darfur region amid ongoing violence. The distributions many carried out with the Sudanese Red Crescent Society will be completed in the coming days. Channel Africa's Jane Matebula has more. Sporadic violence between communities and between armed opposition groups and government forces continues to make it hard for people to lead normal lives. As a result, the International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC, is reaching out to many of those who depend on farming for their livelihoods. The ICRC is providing them with seeds and tools that will enable them to take advantage of the planting season that begins with the onset of the rainy season. Ewan Watson is the organization's spokesperson in Geneva, Well, over recent weeks, and the distribution is still ongoing, in fact, we have been distributing food, seed, and farming tools to approximately half a million people in different parts of Darfur. Now, the reason is that violence still continues in Darfur, and that obviously has a knock-on effect for the civilian population. It means that it's harder for them to go and produce food, to move around freely, to trade, and so in an effort to help them out effectively, especially at the moment, which is critical because it's just before planting season, we have provided them with seed and tools that will, we hope will ensure that they have a decent harvest in a few months. Watson says, fortunately, the ICRC is managing to move around Darfur and reach out to those in need. I'm happy to say that we have been able to move around in Darfur. I mean, at the moment, our aid activity in Darfur is happening in Jebel Mara and Jebel Sea and in different areas near uh, Salinje. So we have a good level of access to the victims of the violence, and we're very happy about that because, of course, that means that we can provide aid to them. But that's not to say that uh, we don't take security very seriously. It is a sensitive area to work. So, of course, it's important for us to remain in contact with all those involved in the fighting to make sure that they understand what we're doing and that we're there to help the people. The ICRC has been working in Sudan since 1978. In 2004, it extended its operations to Darfur, where it helps people suffering the effects of armed conflict and other violence. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Matebula in Johannesburg. The South African Institute for Justice and Reconciliation is hosting its annual Transitional Justice in Africa Fellowship Program in the city of Cape Town. The program brings together scholars and practitioners in the field of transitional justice to compare, reflect and write on the activities they may have been or strive to be engaged in in their respective countries. Each program focuses on a selection of countries within the ambit of the Institute's Justice and Reconciliation in 
Africa program, including Burundi, the DRC, Kenya, Rwanda, South Sudan, Uganda and Zimbabwe. More from senior project leader for the fellowship program, Friedrike Bubenze. We've been hosting this program for the last 10 years or so, and really the idea with it is is to bring mid-career professionals from countries in transition to South Africa for a three-week period, it differs according to our budget, to really learn about South Africa's post-1994 experience, to hear some of the stories and experiences of our transition, how the TRC happened, what other steps were taken in order to remember and memorialize the past. Really for us as well to have a dialogue with these individuals here at the Institute on what is happening in this regard in their countries. So at the moment we have four countries represented. We have two individuals from Kenya, two from South Sudan, one from Burundi and one from Zimbabwe, all of whom are obviously in sort of varying stages of their own transition. So we've been having some very, very interesting conversations here at IJR about transitional justice, about justice and reconciliation in those respective countries. In the 10 years that the fellowship has been running, have the delegates from other countries expressed how South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Program in any way inspired them to follow the same method? Yeah, absolutely. You know, South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission really was the first on the African continent, the first sort of holistic process that dealt very conclusively and very broadly with our pre-1994 experience. And I think it's influenced a lot of countries, and that is not just by virtue of the process that we went through, but also the number of individuals that were involved with it. So, you know, the likes of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who chaired the commission, Alex Borain, who was the deputy chair, and then the many other people who were either commissioners who were involved in research and investigations and things have all been quite instrumental in terms of shaping similar processes in other countries. And certainly that's been the case in places like Burundi and Kenya. The Institute is hoping to be involved more in South Sudan as well. And yeah, I think some very interesting processes have been underway and we've hosted various delegations here as well. You know, the Department of International Relations and Cooperation, DERCO, is instrumental in terms of linking us a lot of the time to countries and individuals who are involved in these processes. So we often host delegations here at IJR and have an experiential exchange with them. So I would say yes. (laughs) And in terms of the South African delegates that attend this fellowship, what have they been saying about the experience or what sort of issues do they discuss or rather share with the other fellows? That's a very good question, Tutu, that we don't actually have South African delegates on the process or on the program. We did very much in the beginning. What we do have is we have a lot of individuals who are engaging with the fellows. So, you know, they meet with a number of local experts who were involved in the TRC process, who have been involved in other restorative justice projects. They also meet with all of our IJR staff here in Cape Town. They meet with a number of sort of normal people, so to speak, as well, such as tour guides, such as guides in museums and at memorials. So they have that opportunity to engage with, you know, the average South African, so to speak. But in terms of formal attendance of the program, we currently don't invite South Africans to attend the program. In the three weeks after that, what usually is the outcome from the delegates from other African countries? What do they say? What happens to the lessons that they've taken during the three-week fellowship program? So IJR works in seven countries on the continent at the moment, in the Great Lakes region, DRC, Burundi, Rwanda, in South Sudan and Kenya, as well as in Zimbabwe. And our 
projects in those countries are very strongly based on relationships with individuals and organizations who operate in a similar way to us. So we work with a lot of grassroots organizations. We work with, you know, quite leading civil society organizations in these countries. And really the fellowship program is a foundation for the building of those relationships. We believe strongly that as an organization, however strongly our experience might be based on the South African TRC experience, you know, and that a number of staff still continue at IJR who were involved in the commission and in that were really born out of the commission. We don't feel that's really our responsibility or our right even to go into countries and say we feel an organization from South Africa that you should be doing A, B, or C. So what we'd rather try and do is build relationships with individuals who are working on justice and reconciliation projects in these respective countries to see and to learn from some of our successes and failures. We try and focus our failures as well because we feel that it's quite important that those aren't repeated in other countries. But, you know, that's where it all is based on. So in the past, we've had some really wonderful and very exciting collaborations in Kenya. We've done some exciting work with the National Cohesion and Integration Commission, which is a body which was set up after the post-election violence in Kenya in 2007-2008. And we've done some work with them around the country talking about building and enhancing social cohesion. Similarly, we've done some work with an organization in northern Uganda consulting victims on their transitional justice needs in the sort of post-Beyond Juba era. So, you know, there's been a number of collaborations and really varying in terms of length and size, so to speak. But that's really the hope, is that there is a little bit of inspiration and a little bit of learning from the South African experience, as well as from other continental experiences, and that those are then implemented and taken into consideration as these countries shape their own transitional justice processes. That was Friedrike Obubenze from South Africa's Institute for Justice and Reconciliation talking to Tutongobeni. We now cross over to Anne Musa for the headlines. Good morning. Voting is going smoothly in Zimbabwe's elections with long queues at polling stations. A tight contest is expected between President Robert Mugabe and his rival Morgan Changarai. Tunisia's ruling in Akhta party says it's open to creating a new government as political tensions escalate between the supporters and opponents of the incumbent government. And former Malian Prime Minister Ibrahim Boubacar Keita holds a wide lead in the first round of the country's presidential election. Details and more at the top of the hour. Thank you, Anne. A new report by the Joint United Nations Programme on HIV-AIDS, UNAIDS, has shown that AIDS-related deaths are continuing to decline in East and Southern Africa. The report, titled Getting to Zero, the HIV Epidemic in Eastern and Southern Africa, was released yesterday here in Johannesburg. Channel Africa's Elizabeth Mapari has more. While the UNAIDS report paints a picture of how Africa is finally coming to grips with HIV-AIDS, it also points to a situation where a few key interventions are critical if countries are to achieve substantial and sustainable progress against the disease. 
One of the key things that countries need to do, according to the report, is to ensure that women continue to benefit from universal access to antiretroviral treatment so that they can reduce maternal mortality. Michelle Sidibe, executive director of UNAIDS, has described the progress African countries have made in reversing the epidemic as important, but says challenges still remain. This report is showing clearly that we are moving from despair to hope and that we are seeing uh, progress or happening, that we are breaking the trajectory of the epidemic. We are seeing a tipping point where many countries today, we have uh, less people newly infected than people put on treatment. That is important, but also challenges. The report is showing that we are failing, for example, to young girls, that young women are more and more infected because their gender positioning in the society, because uh, the violence against uh, young girls, because uh, legal environment is not protecting them. Also, we are not producing enough opportunity for them. Other good news that came out of the report is that countries like Botswana, Ethiopia, Kenya, Namibia, Rwanda, Zambia and Zimbabwe have seen a reduction of at least 50% in the number of AIDS-related deaths since 2005. According to Ethiopia's health minister, Dr. Kesetebiran Admusu, who was also at the launch of the report, the sharp declines in AIDS-related deaths in his country are largely due to engaging the community in this battle. The progress is due to, you know, a systematic and nationwide engagement of the community. In Ethiopia, we have, you know, health workers called health extension workers. We have two in every village. All of them are women. They are from the same community. They are high school graduates plus one year training. They are trained on HIV, on malaria, on TB, on all the most important health problems in Ethiopia. And their primary job is to continuously engage the community and make them aware about the problems what needs to be done and, you know, facilitates the innovation of the community. And because of that, you know, people are willing to be tested for HIV. They want to know their status. And we have also managed to put, you know, more people on treatment. But for people like Prudence Mabili, founder of the Positive Women's Network, a South African civil society organization, launching such reports is simply not enough. Mabili says there are a few things that African governments still need to address. It shows progress and we are excited. However, we need to address certain challenges like sexual and reproductive health, like those countries in the South and Eastern Africa that haven't given treatment. Also, we need to address the cultural norms and also the thing about countries being homophobic and also look at the laws and policies that criminalize people living with HIV. The report didn't leave out the revised guidelines released by the World Health Organization last month, which recommend that people living with HIV start antiretroviral therapy much earlier and immediately in some instances. This, the report outlines, will enable countries to capitalize on the progress made to date and reach more people with life-saving medicines. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Elizabeth Mapari in Johannesburg.
The Vatican has accepted the resignation of a controversial Cameroonian archbishop who has been campaigning against gays. Victor Tonye Bakot was archbishop of Yaoundé. It's alleged that he was asked by the Vatican, which is the seat of the Catholic Church, to resign because of anti-religious activities. Pro-gay groups have welcomed his resignation. Moki Kinzega has more from Yaoundé. There has been total confusion among Catholic Christians since the Vatican, which is the seat of the church, confirmed the resignation of one of Cameroon's most controversial archbishops and anti-gay preacher, Victor Tonye Bakot. I think he was doing his job with relationship to the gay institution and whatever. I think it's not natural and God doesn't permit that and the Archbishop being hard on that, he was quite right and I'm behind him for that. I think it's a very good thing and a good example to Christians, especially to young people like myself. I think it's good because, you know, we live in a world where people get old and they do not want to give up. Looking at the past events that he went through, like the accident, I believe that maybe it is the impact of that accident that has made him to go to rest today. A few weeks ago, when a Cameroonian gay rights activist Eric Ohena Lembembe was found dead in his home. Tonye Bakot cynically remarked that the second death awaited him in heaven. Following his resignation, newspapers have been reporting on the good, the bad and the ugly sides of the bishop. It is said that the Vatican had asked him to resign because he contracted loans and his bank was planning to seal the church and all its hospitals and schools in Yaoundi, where he served as archbishop, and that he was involved in several cases of corruption, embezzlement, and sexual scandals. Tonye Bakot refused to react to such claims. Channel Africa, however, met Jean-Paul Messina, a professor of theology at the Catholic University of Central Africa, and asked him what should have happened. Je ne suis pas pour le moment suffisamment informé des raisons qui ont pu He says he is not aware of the reasons why Tonye Bakot resigned, but that lots of things were said against the archbishop in the media. He says he thinks that he should have been tired, but that he had all possible accusations against him. Dans un contexte où on est précisément objet de toute accusation possible. Following his resignation, Alice Nkom, a 65-year-old lawyer who defends gays, told Channel Africa that Tony Bakot was not a man of God he claimed to be. Normally I must be animist and what else? Who is the representative of Jesus? He must show me his mandate for that. Who was killed by Jesus because he was not normal or he was sin person? Who? So, people who are invoking their religion to kill others, I must remind them that in the Bible, in their Bible, they say you must not kill, okay? So, uh, everybody must uh, manage his own religion. He cannot impose it, it to others because... Um, this is a question of freedom, of human right, of private power to manage his own life. As for the immediate past president of the Episcopal Council of Cameroon's bishops, Cornelius Esua Fontem, the good works of Tonye Bakot, especially in the fight to completely reject gays, must continue. The church is against 
homosexuality for the simple reason that it is against nature. God created man and women as complement of one another. And homosexuality tells us that you can have a relationship man and man and woman and woman. In other words, the natural. One of the most strange things is that some homosexuals want to get children. How do they expect to get children? They want to adopt children. How can they adopt children? Whose children? How can they become real fathers and real mothers? So I would uh, reserve any sort of categorical statement here is that it is automatically from any common sense looking at things against nature. Pope Francis has appointed Jean Barga, the Bishop of Ebolova Diocese in Cameroon, to replace Tony Bacot. Jean Barga has taken office. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. Park rangers and other individuals across the globe are today celebrating World Ranger Day, along with paying tribute to the work that rangers perform to protect the remainders of Earth's natural and cultural heritage. The event observed annually commemorates the many rangers killed or injured in the line of duty. The day is celebrated on the anniversary of the founding of the International Ranger Federation, an organization that supports the work of rangers as the key protectors of parks and conservation. Channel Africa's Selina Dobong is part of a media contingent visiting one of Africa's biggest game reserves, the Kruger National Park, situated in South Africa, where this day will be observed throughout the day. She compiled this report. These are the footsteps of rangers in charge of the eastern region of the Kruger National Park, Chokwani. These men, sometimes comprising of women, are entrusted with the responsibility of protecting and preserving this park. On a daily basis, they cover an area of 10 to 30 kilometers on foot patrolling the section. A team of two to three rangers camps in the designated patrol area for seven days at a go, with much of their daily activities being taken up by looking for and tracking footprints of possible poachers. Philip Nell Chokwane's sectional ranger says this kind of job is not everyone's cup of tea and requires a lot of passion and dedication. They are working long hours. There are a number of poachers operating at the same time. The poachers are well armed, so they can run into exchange of fires and things like that easily. It's just one of the small things, but it's a difficult job in general. <laughs> a ranger speaking on the basis of anonymity says he finds peace in what he does. Uh, I think now it's two years and a half. Yeah, but not much. No, I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying because uh, I'm recognized. No, no. And then, so because I'm learning something if I'm working here. So uh, I've got something. Yesterday, a fresh footprint was found by the rangers during their patrol, suggesting that a poacher was hunting rhino and could possibly be in the area. The area in which the print was found is about three kilometers from the border fence, separating South Africa and Mozambique on the eastern boundary of the park, where most of the poachers are reported to have been coming from. Of the arrests that have so far been made since the beginning of this year, 80% of them are reported 
reported to have been coming from that country. It's very challenging in the sense that people can come in, spend about half an hour. If they track a rhino down in that time, they can be out in no time. So you have to be at the right spot at the right time to uh, prevent or catch these people, arrest them. Uh, otherwise they're in and out and you miss them. Recently we've had the most incidences of poaching on this section, but of course the other sections, especially to the north, north of here, are also heavily targeted and they are probably subjected to the same level of poaching that we are at this place. In a not so far distance from where the fresh footprint was found lies a dehorned rhino carcass that was found 11 days ago. Environmental investigators accompanied by rangers arrive at the scene to collect evidence that will assist in the filing of a poaching case and hopefully prosecution at a later stage. First of all, we check if there's any polydont on the carcass because the polydont is the one that will give us direction where to find the exhibit. Then without the bullet room, it won't be easy for us. Then we have to use that machine to search for a bullet. Then it becomes easy in that way. Then after that, we have to collect a toenail, a skin, tail hair, if there's one there. Then we pack it. Then we send it to Pretoria, University of Pretoria, for database profiling. So if it happened that maybe we arrest a suspect in position of a rhino horn, then we take a sample from that horn, send it to Dr. Skin, then she do the, the comparison with everything on her database. Then it becomes easy for her to tell us then where that one belongs to, to which section was it killed, when, on which date. So even if it's after five years, that person can be charged on that case. With the rapidity at which challenges to protect parklands are changing and increasing, more human capacity is needed. Whilst the globe is seeing a sharp decline of rangers, they are the backbone of park management, working on the ground and on the front line with scientists, visitors and members of local communities. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Selina Ndobong. We now cross over to Tabisoluhuku for our economics news. Zimbabwe's Minister of Indigenization, Savio Kasukiwere, is confident his NPF party will win elections today and intensify plans to take over controlling stakes in banks and other key institutions. Kasukiwere, an ally of President Robert Mugabe, has become the face and driving force behind the controversial indigenization program. It's been scaring off investors, causing direct investment to plummet by about three quarters this year alone. Egypt is in the early stages of an export boom, suggesting its economy could begin to recover in the next few months if minimum level of political stability is restored. Helped by a declining Egyptian pound, non-oil exports have grown at double-digit annual rates since early this year. Despite violence on the streets and deep uncertainty over the country's political future, Egypt's export sector accounts for only slightly more than 10% of the overall economy. 
Kenya Airways has boosted its footprint within the Southern Africa region with the signing of a new code share agreement with Air Namibia, the national carrier of Namibia. The deal paves the way for daily connections between the airlines Nairobi and Ventuk hubs through Johannesburg and Lusaka and Zambia. Under the code share agreement, Kenya Airways will place its KQ code on Air Namibia flights from Johannesburg and Lusaka to Ventuk. In turn, Namibia will place its SW code on Kenya Airways flights from Lusaka and Johannesburg to Nairobi. The code share agreement with Namibia brings the number of code share arrangements that Kenya Airways has signed with other international carriers to 20. Still in Kenya, the Equity Bank and Airtel Kenya have entered into a partnership that will offer comprehensive mobile commerce solutions to their customers in Kenya through Airtel Money. The service available to all Equity Bank customers will, with Airtel Lines will enable customers from both Airtel and Equity Bank to access Airtel mobile banking platforms. Airtel Money will also enable customers to pay their utility bills, receive bank transaction alerts, check account balance and receive mini-statements, among other services. South Africa's Standard Bank is in advance to talks to sell its London commodity trading business to its biggest shareholder, Industrial and Commercial Bank of China. The deal would mark the latest move by Africa's top bank to hive off businesses outside the continent as it focuses on building its presence in faster-growing sub-Saharan markets. Talks between Sub-Saharan, or rather Standard Bank and ICBC, which owns about 20% of the Johannesburg-based lender, are said to be progressing. High municipal electricity tariffs in South Africa could lead to businesses closing down and job losses if the energy industry is not restructured. This warning comes from the National Energy Regulator of South Africa, NERSA, which was briefing Parliament's Committee on Energy. NERSA spokesperson Brian Sechoto. If, if that situation should go on, you may find uh, businesses that are supplied by municipalities going out of business because it's, they cannot compete with their counterparts that are supplied. Obviously what it means in the, in the long run is that uh, first of all it's job losses because if, 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 if business closes down, especially I'm talking now about business customers, yeah, we're going to have uh, uh, job losses within the municipalities, we're going to have a problem of the levies and taxes collected by those municipalities diminishing. The US dollar trades at 980 South African rand, 65 British pounds, 75 euro, 838 Botswana pulas, 544 Zambian guachas, gold $1,331, platinum $1,439 an ounce, brand crude oil trades at $107.75 a barrel. Economics update. Thank you, Tabiso. We now cross over to Tami Kuza for our sports news.
Tanzania is among countries earmarked by Barcelona to unearth future generations of African talent, which they hope can one day follow in the footsteps of Samuel Eto, Yaya Toure and Alex Song. Spanish champion coaches from their world-famous La Masia Academy will visit a number of Southern African countries as part of the sponsorship deal. The coaches will pass on their techniques on to the local coaches in countries including Botswana, Namibia, South Africa, Tanzania and Zambia. Now Barcelona are hoping the new link-up will only provide wider commercial opportunities but a pathway for future stars to establish themselves in one of the world's biggest clubs. Three Cameroonian federations, cycling, boxing and rugby, are suspended from international competition for different reasons. The cycling federation was suspended by the International Cycling Union in February because of a poor organization of the 2010-2011 editions of the International Cycling Tour of Cameroon. The boxing federation, like football, was suspended by the International Amateur Boxing Association, the IABA, because of government interference. The rugby federation, like cycling, was suspended for mismanagement by the confederation of African Rugby, CAR. In addition to boxing, rugby and cycling, elections have been cancelled by the Chamber of Conciliation in Headball and Wrestling. In local football teams that finished in the top eight on the South African APSA Premiership table last season will battle it out in the country's most lucrative football competition club, the MTN8, from next week. The team that wins the first knockout competition of the season will walk away with a whooping 800,000 US dollars winner's prize money. University of Pretoria could be a surprise package when they take on the champions Kaiser Chiefs on the 10th of next month at the FNP Stadium. Kaiser Chief midfield maestro Seabongangosi says that there is a good spirit among the players and that they are hungry for more achievements. The good thing is, uh, instead of the guys uh, uh, getting complacent and, and, and being satisfied, there's, there's hunger, you feel that there's hunger for more and more and more, which is a good thing, you know. Uh, when there's success and you're able to, uh, to, grab, to grab it in and, and, and swallow it and then continue the, the, the next day and look forward to, to even more. I think uh, it's a good sign of, of, of a good team. It's a sign of a good team and it's a sign of a team that's, that's going to be able to sustain the success. However, University of Pretoria captain Debo Khomunyai says that they have never lost a game against Keza Chiefs and next week Saturday they also fancy their chances. History will tell you that we've never lost Chiefs as a club and we want to keep it in that way and we want to make sure that it happens that way throughout. You know, a lot of people might think that it was a fluke for us to, uh, to have uh, beaten Chiefs twice, but we're out there uh, going to prove to uh, a lot of people out there that we, we are a club which is uh, looking to do well uh, every season, but we need to, to make sure that we, we walk past uh, uh, Kaza Chiefs. Playing Chiefs is always an, an easiest thing for us, you know, because uh, the coaches don't have much to do. All the players are motivated. And now in hockey, the South African women's under-21 hockey team beat Canada 6-3 in their final pool B match to advance to the quarterfinals of the Women's Junior World Cup in Germany yesterday. They finished second in their group and will face defending champions in the Netherlands on Thursday morning. Coach Lindsay Rice charges were disappointed to go into the halftime break level on one all after Priya Radawa equalized for Canada from the open play. 
And on cricket, South African cricket team, the Proteus, feel that there is still a lot to gain from the dead rubber fifth one-day international against Sri Lanka at the R. Primadasa Stadium this morning. The series may be out of their grip, but the Proteus will feel that they can rescue some pride and cap off an otherwise disappointing series with a performance that does justice to their talent and skill. Injuries have been forced the management to play around with a few options this season, which has shed light on the lack of consistency in some key positions. This will be the last match before their trip to the United Arab Emirates in November to play against Pakistan and will give some players the opportunity to entrench their place in the limited overs fold ahead of the tour. And finally, with swimming news, South African swimmers Cameron van der Berg, Julio Zosi and Charles Leclerc have all qualified for the finals of South Africa at the World Swimming Championships in Barcelona last night. Van der Berg and Zosi qualified for the today's men's 50-meter breaststroke final, while Leclerc is the favorite in the 200-meter butterfly final. Leclerc, who stunned the swimming world last year at the Olympics when he beat U.S. swimming star Michael Phelps to win gold in the 200-meter butterfly, was the fastest qualifier with a time of 1 minute 55.33 seconds. And that's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at this hour. Voting gets underway in Zimbabwe and UN renews mandate of its peacekeeping mission in Darfur. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or send us an SMS. 2 plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Salif Keita with Africa. Yeah.